Before I get to um, the sermon today, I'm going to invite Daniel to turn on his mic and video. I'll give him a second to do that, and he's going to read our scripture for today, which comes from the Psalms. It's the 32nd Psalm. Uh, Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and brittle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Um, that psalm, like so many psalms, goes in a whole gamut of the human experience from the extreme depths of sin and despair up to the most pristine comforts of God's enduring love for us, God's comfort. And um, as I talk today in this sermon, I hope that we can hold that complexity of sin in mind, the complexity that it speaks of the worst in us as it also speaks to the most incredible thing that God is with us, God loves us, even despite these horrible things that we are capable of and that we know that we can do. And so the first thing that I really want to say today um, in the sermon is that I'm going to be talking about racism and white supremacy, and I'm going to be talking about them specifically through this lens, through this language of sin. And so I don't say this to condemn white people or suggest, certainly not suggest, that in any way I'm free of racism and white supremacy myself. Quite the opposite. In fact, I think that this language of sin might just be able to help us be better allies, have more um, strength and endurance for this long road ahead of us, as well as have a bit more grace for ourselves and others along this difficult and challenging path, the work of anti-racism. So beyond going, beyond just being another way of saying that racism is bad, what actually changes if we see racism as a sin? Like, does it matter if we use this language of sin to talk about racism? You know, it may or may not, but at least for me, I think it does kind of shift the stakes of what's um, in question when we're talking about racism. Because if we see racism as a sin, that means that it's not just that we're fighting for our black and brown siblings when we work for racial justice, it's really that the state and the health of our very own souls is somehow in stake. 
The truth is that when we, as especially white people, engage in this work of anti-racism, we're challenging the idol that whiteness has become for so many of us in this culture. Not because we've chosen it, not because we knew that we were doing that, but because white supremacy is run so deep in our society and has been taught to us our whole lives. Because our whiteness, for many of us, can keep us safe, can give us access to power, can be something that we really like, and that if we're really quite honest, many of us kind of want to protect, kind of want to keep. It works for us. And so as we engage in this work of white supremacy, we're actually engaging in or engage in this work of addressing white supremacy through the lens of sin. We're actually looking at the ways that it has poisoned and misformed our very own souls, our very own ways of being people and of living in the world. And so before we say anything else about sin and racism, we have to take a lot, a hard, long look in the mirror and say, this work of racism is not just of addressing racism, is not just about looking out there and calling it out on other people or just about changing institutions. It's about changing the way that we live, the way that we look at the world, the way that we look at ourselves. And yeah, it's this very kind of internal and painful work. And the truth is, when we do this work, a lot of us, white people especially, are going to turn out looking pretty bad. I took part in this workshop earlier this year where we read a book by a black woman named Layla Saad. The book's called White Supremacism and Me. And so this book is organized as a guide for people to learn about the different ways that white supremacy and racism manifest in the world, but especially in ourselves. It actually made us journal out all of these different um, really embarrassing and uncomfortable things, things like um, the ways that we prefer and prioritize white people, we had to write that down, or the ways that we benefit from racist wall laws, or the ways that we get to live without fear and black people do not. And yeah, listing all that stuff out was extremely not fun. It was embarrassing. It made me feel bad. I had to look at a bunch of the ugly ways of thinking and living that I've picked up over the course of my entire life. The truth is, all of us in that workshop had to do this. No matter where we were from, no matter what our politics were, it was a multiracial group, and even no matter the color of our skin, every single person in that group found ways that racism and white supremacy had seeped into our own minds and into our own hearts and into our own habits of living. Just like the stain of sin that we're taught that we all have, the stain of racism impacts every single one of us. The hardest part of that class, though, wasn't just li listing out those things and naming um, embarrassing like memories and uh, things where I felt like I failed. It was really confronting this possibility, this reality that I'm not as good of a person and I'm not as good of an ally as I would like to think that I am. I was this image of myself as a good person, as somebody who cares about racism, as somebody who's done all this work, was really threatened. And the truth is, sin teaches us a similar lesson. In fact, the most basic teaching in Christianity is that sin limits and strains and stains all of us, and it does that our entire lives. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many books we read, 
no matter how we woke we are, we all still bear this mark of sin. And yeah, that can feel really overwhelming and sound really negative. And even right now, I kind of feel like I'm droning on about how broken and limited and just hopeless we all really are. But I do think there's actually a really important and helpful other side to this story of sin. I think that it can help us be liberated, be freed from this like overwhelming, paralyzing, freezing need that I feel and I think so many of us feel to be perfect, to, see, to be seen as not racist, to say the right thing, to post the right thing on social media, to show up to all of the right protests. When we put all of this pressure on ourselves, we just get frozen. And so to say that sin can liberate us is not to excuse recognizing our sin, is definitely not to excuse racist behaviors or beliefs, but it's just to normalize the inevitability of failure that we're all going to face along the way. When it comes to racism, I know that it can feel nearly impossible to actually own our own experiences and limitations as white people. So often we want to bury and hide the ways that we've messed up, and silence the fears and confusions that conversations around racism bring up for us. We want to ignore the questions that we still have that don't really feel like we should ask. We don't want to talk about the racist people in our family or the racist jokes that we made in high school or college or even a few years ago. We don't want to talk about the stereotypes that shape how we think about black and brown people even today. I, don't, I think the reason we don't really want to do this is because we're terrified. As I look out and I see all these white people desperately denying that they are racist or that racism is real, most of what I see is fear. I see people who are terrified that if they are seen as racist or called out for making a racist remark, then they're going to be ostracized, they're going to be fired, they're going to be excluded, they're going to be written off, and they're going to be alone. And honestly, I can understand that fear. I share it. Because the truth is, we all live in this society that tells us over and over again that our capacity to be loved comes in equal measure to our goodness. If we make a mistake, people are going to leave us, people are going to talk about us, people are going to write us off. But the thing is, that's the complete opposite message of the gospel. In the gospel, we hear this completely mind-blowing and paradigming, changing, and honestly for me, almost impossible to believe most of the time, message that God loves us despite our sins, despite our failings. Yes, God even loves us despite the racism that we actively commit and, and act like inadvertently assent to. Yeah, that's a big thing for us to really hold in mind. And I hope that recognizing that, recognizing that God loves us still and this community of church is called to be a place where we can love each other despite our failings and this recognition that all of us have failings can open up into a space where we can actually acknowledge and confess the racism that we hold in our hearts, that we commit without having to cover it up. You know, it honestly confuses me because I, as I think about it, I think Christians should be some of the people who are most willing and most bold and courageous in their willingness to confess sin. But sadly, we know that this is not true. 
certainly for me, it's not true when I have this one friend in particular who often will call out racist things that I've done or said accidentally, and I just get so mad at her. I just want to defend myself and say that wasn't my intention and you didn't hear me right. And you know I've read like many books about racism and I've gone to these trainings and that I care about this. I just want her and really everyone in the world to see me as this good person. But the truth is we don't heal from sin through denial and secrecy, and we don't heal from racism by saying that we aren't racist. We heal from sin through confession and through repentance. And so we, white people especially, really have to cultivate the humility and the courage to repent and confess openly the ways that we're racist. When we're called out, we shouldn't hesitate. We should be really ready to just simply say, you know what, thank you so much for telling me. I'm so sorry for what I did, and I'll do my best to do better next time. Honestly, what if police departments just confessed and owned up to their racist histories and present realities? Will we not be miles ahead in the fight for racial justice? Beyond confession, sin also demands repentance. In the truest sense of the word, repentance really doesn't just mean like saying I'm sorry or um, calling something bad or feeling bad about it. Repentance literally means changing your mind and changing direction. Repentance means real, tangible change. And so for us to respond adequately to racism and white supremacy, for us to truly live like Black Lives Matter requires actual change, actual repentance. I know that y'all know this, but like we really have to grapple with the type of change that we're talking about. This is the part of anti-racism work that has scared me for a while. Um, it's that the type of changes that I think we're really called to do are not gonna feel good. Like it's gonna look like giving up power and losing things and being led to places where we never thought we'd actually go. It's gonna look like sacrificing things. It's going to feel scary and unfamiliar we're probably going to have to not have as smooth of relationships with our bosses and mentors and teachers. We're going to have to have really gross and uncomfortable conversations with our family members. We're going to have to actually give money away. And for us at Root and Branch, we're going to have to really question whether this church, our church, is as welcoming and anti-racist as we say it is and as we would like it to be. Without change, there really can't be repentance. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to change? Like literally change. Which legislators and aldermen are we going to call over and over again? Which black people are we going to be accountable to? And how will we form those relationships? What changes do our workplaces need to make? And how will we be a way of pushing those forward? If we take these questions seriously, it's going to feel scary. And it should, because the kind of changes that we are trying to make are going to lead us way beyond what we're comfortable with. We might find ourselves going to neighborhoods and making relationships with people who we never would have expected to, to know. We might find ourselves giving away more money than we ever thought was smart. We might find ourselves protesting in the streets or making speeches at police headquarters we might find ourselves quitting our jobs and confusing our families with the weird radical choices that we're making. But these kinds of things really are the dramatic changes that repentance requires. 
it's so repentance, this idea that often just feels like weak and like milk toast or something is really about entering into a radically different world, something completely new. This idea of new life that's just at the heart of Christianity is deeply tied to repentance. On this life's journey of ours, we're not supposed to be going toward a place that's just kind of like where we are now, but slightly better. We're supposed to be going somewhere that's unlike anything we've known before, a completely new and different place, the kingdom of God. And really, that's why this work of anti-racism is about faith. It's about faith because ultimately we don't know what repentance for and the work of anti-racism is going to require from us until that moment that we're challenged to do something that we never thought was possible before. And we don't know where it's going to take us until we end up there. And so I just hope that on this journey, we have the courage to follow God down this path because ultimately everything is such a mess. It runs so deep. There's so much confusion and competing voices that only God can really liberate us from the sin of racism. And only God can lead us to the anti-racist world that is the promised land. And so it's up to us in this little church, this little place of root and branch, to get down to this business of listening to and following God on this journey. I hope that we'll be ready to confess and repent courageously for the sins that we encounter and that we come to see along the way, and that we'll have the grace to bring others into this work with us. Amen.